Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. More news from the UK. It's tier 3 status finally accepted in Greater Manchester. Barry Brothers in Red announced new, streamlined FMV portfolio. 200,000 litres of counterfeit tequila destroyed by Mexican authorities. Young couple served a $2,000 bottle of Bordeaux by mistake in a New York restaurant. And as ever, our wine of the week. So to kick things off, uh, our week in wine, as usual. And Matthew, you had quite an interesting event happen. You were sat around the computer with a couple of Washington State winemakers and a couple of burgers. So how did that come about? Well, I unexpectedly received an invite asking me to join this uh, kind of webinar, but also kind of a dinner as well, um, as we can't meet in person. And Washington Wine wanted to um, have some media folk hook up with a couple of winemakers and talk about the wines and also talk about food pairings as well. So they came up with the um, interesting idea of pairing the wines with kind of a dive burger, fast food burger, and a high-end burger as well. The end of both spectrums of um, American fa- of American dining in the burger, which they're so famous for. And so it was quite fun. It's a bit weird eating in front of the camera. I've never done that before. And I think all of us were very conscious, and burgers can be quite messy as well, of uh, people watching us eat. But apart from that, um, it was a lot of fun to hear from the winemakers and to um, match up the different wines with the burgers. Yeah, and it was an intimate affair, correct? You only had, I think, what, four sort of media people, and then the two uh, winemakers, and then you had a, a sort of liaison or moderator, if you will, to kind of keep the conversation going. I witnessed it from afar, but it sounded like you guys were having a good time. Yeah, the idea was to replicate the as if we were in a restaurant all together, and I think they did a good job of that. The conversation flowed quite easily. Everyone had something to say, and the host, Avril, was... Um, was really good at kind of keeping everything going and making it fun rather than kind of a boring formal conversation about food and wine pairing. It was actually more about just the experience. Right, totally rethinking the idea of a media event or a media dinner. Um, and, you know, that's sort of what's been happening uh, across sectors in the wine industry. We've had to kind of adapt to the new situation with COVID that doesn't seem to really have an end in sight. And that kind of relates to uh, my week in wine, where I hosted another webinar for the California Wine Institute with uh, Dan Petrosky. Really interesting to hear from him about his Massacan label and what he's doing on Instagram uh, with said label. Uh, so it's at Massacan Winery. You can find it on Instagram. And it is a publication that actually comes out through stories on Instagram. So there is no you know, website, there's no uh, actual hard copy physical publication, but it all, all the news comes out through stories and is then saved in the highlights uh, of the profile page. And it's exquisite. It's beautiful, beautifully curated, interesting articles, and it all comes through on social media. So, you know, really just another way of rethinking um, what's possible. Yeah, you showed me... um... The stories on Instagram are absolutely fantastic, just beautifully designed and a very different way of using Instagram, which I found actually quite inspirational. And the wines are fantastic as well. We, we had a bottle of the Anya last night, which is one of his Italian white blends and absolutely delightful. 
Indeed. And to wrap up our weekend wine, just a little update from the cellar. So I completed my harvest internship. Obviously not that difficult, seeing as I was only going in once a week. Uh, but it's officially wrapped up, at least in the Napa Valley, uh, for Judd's Hill. And it'll be very interesting to see how all these wines uh, turn out. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it with the smoke taint and the quality of the grapes, but I have no doubt that we'll see some pretty interesting 2020 wines out there, albeit not as many. But yeah, so I'm kind of back to my usual weekends, which I'm kind of looking forward to. Yeah, I look forward to trying the 2020 vintages and having you back on a Saturday. And now on with the news. Members of the hospitality industry this week protested in London over the UK government's handling of the pandemic and its effect on bars, pubs, restaurants and workers. As reported on the pod last week, the government has introduced a three-tier system, which has applied regionally according to COVID-19 cases. And London has entered tier two, which prohibits people from different households from meeting um, inside a pub or a similar establishment. And after much wrangling due to the government's refusal to cover the financial cost of forced closures, Greater Manchester this week went into Tier 3, in which only pubs that serve substantial meals can remain open. Meanwhile, across England, the 10pm curfew still applies, an arbitrary cut-off point that has angered the drinks industry. Meanwhile, in Wales, a two-week firebreak has been imposed, in which all bars, pubs and restaurants must close, apart from takeaway and deliveries. This means the closure of 3,000 pubs, just a couple of months after they were allowed to open again. Such on-off restrictions create a great deal of uncertainty for the industry, both business owners who have to manage stock as well as other overheads and, and for workers, especially freelance workers who aren't covered by the government's furlough scheme. The scale of the effects of the partial lockdowns were immediately felt with sales falling by over 40% in Tier 2 regions and by 60% in Tier 3. It all sounds quite chaotic. I just uh, got a message from a friend of mine who lives in London uh, saying that they're in Tier 2 restrictions, whatever that means, and asking um, what it was like here in California. And These restrictions keep changing, they're going back and forth, and that pull that we've been talking about quite a lot on the pod between supporting the economy and I think also people's kind of mental well-being, as well as protecting them from COVID-19. And so I think this is just going to be the story of the winter, this continual tug between um, keeping places open and closing them. Yes, a very uncertain time for restaurant and bar owners who are trying to juggle the decision to open up. It's, you know, difficult with having to have fewer covers each night to make it worth in bringing back staff and to, you know, in taking on all this overhead, uh, it often doesn't seem to be a very profitable venture. I'm sure really hard for those that really care about their employees, you know, trying to offer them some sort of stability. And it's really just not possible with all these government regulations going back and forth. Yes, especially when you have, you're forced to reclose, you put all that effort into opening and you see some success and you think, oh, it's actually worthwhile. And then you have to close again and you don't know when you're going to open again, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very difficult um, specter for um, all these people in the industry. Also in the UK, a couple of months ago, the pod reported on the number of international producers that distinguished distributor FMV, the distributor arm of historic London wine merchant Berry Brothers and Rudd, had found their way on the portfolios of rival distributors. 
This prompted speculation that Berry Brothers were preparing to wind up FMV. However, this week, the company announced a new streamlined portfolio for FMV, with just 100 producers and a focus on Burgundy. They stated that they were moving towards a, quote, more tightly focused trade base concentrated on luxury retailers, independent and fine wine merchants, and selected high profile on trade establishments. Although the focus is on Burgundy, there are a number of other high profile producers from elsewhere in France and across the world, including Emmerich Knoll of Austria, Saadi of South Africa, Lopez de Heredia, and Vega Cecilia from Spain and Oban Klamat, Colgan Cellars, and Ridge Vineyards from California. Sounds like a long-planned restructuring rather than the panic fire sale it had initially seen, doesn't it, Matthew? Right, and 35 of FMV's former clients are now distributed by Bancroft. But it does seem that the two firms have been working closely to provide a smooth transition for all these international uh, producers so that they still get distributed across the UK without having to change their whole uh, sales setup. And so it does seem that FMV were just kind of, and Berry Brothers and Rudd were just kind of restructuring and making it much more um, fine-tuned rather than having such a large portfolio. But it's interesting that they've been doing that. And I think it has been prompted by a difficulty in selling all the brands in, por- in their portfolio and deciding that it's just a lot easier and more effective to have a smaller portfolio where they can focus on some really high-end producers. <laughs> Authorities in Mexico have destroyed nearly 200,000 liters of counterfeit tequila found in the city of Tlaquepaque. The head of the Cámara Nacional de la Industria Tequila, Ruben González González, said that the tequila did not conform with regulations and sales of it would have damaged the industry and potentially harmed customers. The 199,000 liters is the equivalent of 6.8 million drinks. This is the fourth largest destruction of fake tequila. Unfortunately, it happens too often, 22 times since 2002, when regulations were brought in to protect the sector. So it appears that it's not just wine that suffers from fraud. What do you think about the situation, Matthew? Well, in some ways, this is good news. It shows that the Mexican authorities are um, looking for fake tequila and making sure that uh, consumers are not getting the bad stuff because tequila for a long time had a very bad reputation uh, for being kind of a hangover cause and being of cheap quality. Uh, But there's been a definite move to make tequila a good drink. And I think tequila out there is absolutely fantastic. And so it's very important that these seizures are made and that we're aware that uh, the, the authorities are on top of it. But yes, we've been talking about a lot of fraud recently. It's something that the, all these authorities have to deal with uh, quite a bit. Well, so my question is, where do those 200,000 liters of counterfeit tequila go? Great question. How do you destroy tequila? Well, perhaps they turned it into hand sanitizer. That would be the most appropriate for the times. New York restaurant Balthazar this week admitted they had served a young couple a $2,000 bottle of Mouton Rothschild by mistake. They had ordered an $18 bottle of Pinot Noir, while a businessman on the table next to them had ordered the highly rated Bordeaux, which was from the 1989 vintage, so two very different wines, I'm sure. The two wines were both decanted and served at the same time, hence the mix-up. The couple jokingly pretended to be drinking an expensive wine, owner Keith McNally said. 
but after five minutes, the restaurant manager realised the mistake and explained it to the two tables. However, he said it was unthinkable to take the Bordeaux from the couple, who were ecstatic by the mistake, and said it was like the bank making an error in their favour. The businessman on the next table had initially praised the purity of the $18 Pinot Noir that he'd been accidentally served, but when the manager owned up to the mistake, he said he had realised it wasn't the 1989 Mouton he had initially ordered, and his three fellow diners nodded in sage agreement. What I really liked about this article was it sort of illustrated the broad spectrum of wine consumers. You have the young couple, uh, a little timid about spending a lot of money on a bottle of wine, and, and they owned up to their $18 for a Pinot Noir, you know, maybe something really special for them. And meanwhile, you have the businessman, um, obviously could be a collector, paying attention to names, regions, wants his Bordeaux and wants to spend top dollar for it. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, you really wonder if the businessman was being true. Was he? Did he really recognize it as a, a cheap and cheerful Pinot Noir, or was he maybe just fooled and and only buys wine based on the price, based on the name, versus actually having a palate that recognizes quality? Yes, we just don't know. It is difficult in a restaurant, whoever you are, to say that the wine isn't what you expected it to be, especially when you're spending $2,000. So maybe he did realize but was just uncertain about how to express it, or maybe he just had no clue. It sounds like the young couple knew that they were drinking a really expensive wine, uh, but obviously didn't really have the the knowledge to um, be able to kind of transmit that information. Well, no one's going to admit they got the better bottle, are they? It's true. It's like, okay, if this is what an $18 Pinot Noir tastes like, then fantastic. What I want to know is why were they pouring an $18 Pinot Noir into a decanter? It seems rather unnecessary. But a very nice evening for that young couple. I'm just glad they didn't take the glasses away from them mid-sip. And now for our wine of the week, which is Matthew. The producer is Marcus Altenberger. The name of the wine is Von Kalk. It's Chardonnay. And it's from Bergenland in Austria. And Austria has very very much been on our radar in recent weeks. No surprise, as the wine is so good. We reported a few weeks ago on a tasting of skin contact wine from Austria, and we returned to the landlocked Alpine nation with a more traditional wine, though perhaps not one associated with Austria. Chardonnay. Yes, and I do think I have something to do with this uh, wine of the week, since uh, this was one that you tasted during one of your tastings with uh, Martine's Wines, a great importer here in the U.S. I happened to be tasting along with you, um, something I don't do very often, but it's really happy I jumped in on that session and tasted this wine and was just blown away. And I don't know if you were completely convinced until I came in and gave my opinion. And uh, yet it seems to have made its way on the Blackpool Mats wine club list in the end. Indeed. I just was tasting it. I thought this is a good Chardonnay. Quite happy with it. And then you tasted it and um, you were very, very happy. You're in the very happy Katie place. And I think um, I've learned that I should always listen to your opinion. And in general, it's always good to listen to other people's opinions. And so when you loved it so much, and I thought it was good, we decided, I decided to uh, get it into my wine club. And then we um, tasted it last week again, had a bottle. And Katie, of course, was right. Absolutely lovely. I think the word for it is yummy. And it's everything that's good about Chardonnay. Well, I am glad that you learned that lesson, Matthew. May you always remember it in the future. 
The producer is Marcus Altenberg, based in Bergenland, near Neuzivlese, the large shallow lake. And he took over the property in 2006 when plantings were 70% Chardonnay and 30% Blaufrankisch and made the decision to focus more on Blaufrankisch. So plantings are now 70% Blaufrankisch and 30% Chardonnay. Yeah, and the Blaufrankisch is fantastic. We um, had that a couple of weeks ago and enjoyed it greatly. And he is one of the leading lights in the move towards quality red wine in Austria. But we're really glad he's stuck with Chardonnay because it's also fantastic. In fact, whenever we've tasted Austrian Chardonnay, we've always been seriously impressed. And the cool to moderate climate is perfect for a balance between ripe fruit aromas and vibrant acidity. And so, Katie, you loved this wine the moment you tasted it. What was it that just appealed to you so much? I suppose the immediate sensation was just the lack of winemaking. It just felt like it was pure, fresh fruit, really nice, high acidity, nothing kind of over the top about it. You know, it's been tasting a lot of California Chardonnays, a lot of others from the New World that can be wildly over-oaked, and this one was not in the slightest. And and yet the fruit wasn't it wasn't overly aromatic as you would expect it to be, since Chardonnay is naturally not a, you know, really aromatic grape variety. So it just felt very true to form and I think great food wine. And I think also just the price point, because what this retails for twenty two dollars. That's correct. At this price point, I think it does absolutely everything you want it to. And you probably expect it to be um, a little bit more than this. In fact, I asked you how much you thought it would cost. I think you said $25. I think I said 28 I, th- I thought it was line price with the Blau Frankish. That's 22 as well. So I was wrong on both of them. So both wines punching far above their weight. Absolutely. And that's what we want. Really good value, high quality wine. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. Uh, as always, we would love to hear from you uh, and appreciate your reviews and ratings. Uh, you can do so on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you find your podcasts. Uh, it really helps people find us and we would love to hear what you think so we can continue to improve. I always appreciate feedback and we'll be back here next week for another episode of Wind Up Weekly. Weekly.